Well, good evening. Hello. Hello. Oh. Good evening. How are you going? I wonder how long we could carry on this conversation. Okay, that was as far as it got. Okay. This year, we're a talk to, this year, 2010, marks a very significant anniversary. The EU at Sydney Uni is 80 years old this year. 80 years. And you know what? 80 years ago, they wouldn't have done that. And it would go, woo! I reckon that's... I don't reckon in 1930 you would do that. They'd probably go, yes! Very good, very good. That makes us, that makes us not quite as old as Gough Whitlam. But then I thought, none of you probably know who he is. So it... But it also makes us twice as old as Paddy Ben. <laughs> Roughly. I mean, I've never actually asked his age, but, you know. It also makes us, it makes us approximately five times as old as Justin Bieber. <laughs> I don't actually know who that is, but someone told me that I should use him. Does he go to a school near here or something? I don't know who he is. So the fact that we're 80 years old, that means that we've been around longer, the EU has been around longer than the Harbour Bridge. The EU has been around longer than McDonald's. We were on campus at Sydney Uni before they built the Madsen Building, before they built Carslaw, Wallace, Blackburn, Fisher, Merriweather, Eastern Avenue, or the Law School. And most of you go on the Law School, come on, but if you're new to the campus, you're going, really? The Law School? <laughs> that being said, just to give you a sense of our age, we are not quite as old as Vegemite. There you go. Now, I don't know what it says about us, but we're exactly the same age as Fredo Frogs and the same age exactly as the FIFA World Cup. One, now, interestingly, in 1930, the first, just because, you know, for the football tragics here, it was won by this particular team, the team from Uruguay, and there's the team that won the first World Cup. You interested in that? No, neither am I, really. So, let's just... So, Fredo Frogs, the FIFA World Cup and the EU all started the same year, 80 years ago. Which do you think has been the most successful? Yeah, that's tricky, hey. Who votes Fredo Frogs? Who votes FIFA World Cup? I'm not going to ask the other one. Okay. Here's my question. Which is the most well-known? Now, it's got to be FIFA, right? It's got to be World Cup. It's got to be World Cup. Okay. Third question. Third question. Which has done things that will echo into all eternity? <laughs> Not 
not in our own strength. We are here sheerly, sheerly by grace. Not in our own strength. But which under God has done things that will last into all eternity. And God willing will continue to do so. See, for 80 years, for 80 years at Sydney Uni, the EU has been proclaiming one message, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we've been saying for 80 years, and God willing, that's what we'll continue to say. We'll continue to proclaim it, because in that gospel message is the power of God for salvation into all eternity. And it's right there in the EU's first object or first goal. That's there in your booklet as well. What's our, what's our reason for being? What's the, the premier thing we exist to do? It's this, to present students with the Christian gospel and to lead them to a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we exist to do at Sydney Uni, to present the Christian gospel to students. Um, There's a wonderful clarity about that, isn't there? That's what we exist to do. That's what we've been doing for 80 years, or in God's strength we'll keep doing. We are, above anything else, a mission task force. We're not a happy, clappy club of friends. We're not people who just like hanging out together. We're not even people who love to study the Bible because it's intellectually satisfying more so than anything else, though I believe that to be true. We exist, we were set up to exist as a mission task force to present students with the Christian gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, let's not be uh, kidding ourselves. This is actually not an EU innovation to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is actually, as you can see on your notes, the apostolic gospel. This hasn't been proclaimed for 80 years, friends. This has been proclaimed for 2,000 years around the world. In fact, it's the very message of the very first Christian sermon preached by the Apostle Peter 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. You can see it there, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, he said, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the central Christian message to the world. It's not, be nice to each other. That's not our message. It's not, develop your spiritual side. As though, you know, we're pleading for some sort of relevance in the marketplace of ideas. Our message isn't, you can have the very best life possible if you have Jesus. As though we have to appeal to people's selfishness. In fact, and you might be surprised at this, our primary message, our primary message is not, you can be forgiven. Our primary message is not, you can have eternal life. Or God wants to bless you with the Holy Spirit. As the central message of Christianity, those, I think, are all corrupt because they put human beings at the centre. The primary Christian message to the world, the great gospel of God, 
that we proclaim. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about Jesus. Jesus the Christ is Lord. So when you proclaim the gospel, fundamentally you are announcing a truth about a person, that this man, Jesus, is Christ and Lord. Now that entails a whole lot of other things about forgiveness and eternal life and the Holy Spirit. But the centre is about him, that Jesus Christ is Lord. But what does it mean when you say that Jesus is Lord? The meaning of lordship, point B there. There are three ways the word Lord is used in the New Testament and the only way you can tell them apart is by reading the context very carefully. So the first way it's used is as a common honorific, that is a polite way of showing respect to someone, like saying, oh, sir, sir, please go before me. It's just a, a polite form of address. So you can find examples of that in the Gospels. Luke chapter 7, verse 6, the centurion says to Jesus, he just calls him Lord. Not, not in a way that he's saying anything more, I think, in that context than just a polite form of address. So Lord can just be that, a polite form of address. Secondly, Lord was used as a political title. So in the first century in the Roman Empire, Caesar was called Lord. Now I think there's an interesting reflection of that in Acts 17 verses 5 to 7, Acts 17, 5 to 7, where the, the Christians are accused of proclaiming another king before the Roman authorities. And I presume that that was because Christians kept proclaiming to everyone that Jesus was Lord. And so they were open to this accusation that they're proclaiming another king because we know Caesar is Lord. So it was a politically subversive thing to say, actually, that Jesus is Lord. But finally, and this is the key for us tonight, Lord was used instead of God's divine name. It was used as a substitute for Yahweh in the Old Testament. So out of respect for God and his name, Whenever the Jews read their Hebrew Old Testament and came across this word Yahweh, they would substitute the Hebrew word for Lord. It says Yahweh, but they would just, when reading it out, they would just say the word Lord, just out of respect. So when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, instead of transliterating the word Yahweh into Greek, they just wrote in the Greek word for Lord, because that's what everyone said when they read it. And so you get this situation where when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they use the word Lord for God's name. So there's an example there on your page from Acts chapter 2. In this first sermon that Peter preached, he quotes the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31, and says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Now the word Lord's there in Joel, it's Yahweh. Reading on verse 21, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, again, in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh, shall be saved. So the important point is this, when you read the word Lord in your New Testament, you have to work out which one it is. Is it just a common, polite sort of form of address? Is it a political title? Or is it actually a direct reference to God's divine name, Yahweh? Which one is it? Now, why is that important? Well, because all the time in the New Testament, we keep seeing that Jesus is Lord. So which one does it mean? That he's the political ruler? That we treat him politely? Or is it saying actually something about him being God? 
Well, the shocking answer, and it really is shocking, is that when the New Testament proclaims Jesus is Lord, it is this astounding inclusion of Jesus into the unique divine identity of God. Now, let me take you through this because this is a massive point. One of the absolute bedrock, one of the non-negotiable truths of Judaism was that God is one. Judaism was a one God only faith, monotheistic, one Godism. It wasn't just saying we worship one God instead of many. It was actually saying something stronger. It was saying we believe there is only one God. There is only one God in all the universe. And it's this God, Yahweh. This was just an incontrovertible pillar of Jewish belief. If you were an Israelite, then every morning and every evening you would recite the Shema. There on your page, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. You would say this twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, is our God. The Lord is one. One God only. And his name is Yahweh. Now get that in your head and then look again at what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 and think, what is this guy doing? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 to 6. He says, Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and there is no God but one. So he's agreeing with the standard Jewish orthodoxy, one God only. Indeed, even though there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, by which he means Christians, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now you have to remember, Paul was a Jew long before he became a Christian. He was a Pharisee. He was a devoted, orthodox, pious, passionate Jew and was absolutely committed to monotheism. Paul didn't abandon his monotheism when he became a Christian. He understood the Christian faith to be the fulfilment or the intended end point of Judaism, not its complete negation. So what he's done here in 1 Corinthians 8 is not to start to proclaim two gods. We've discovered a new God. There's Yahweh and there's Jesus. No. Rather, he's inserted the man Jesus into the most well-known statement of Old Testament monotheism, the Shema. So instead of saying there's one God, the Lord, Paul says there's one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the astounding inclusion at the heart of the Christian gospel, that this man Jesus has been included in the divine identity. So Richard Balcom, you can see there, he notes this. He says, Paul is not adding to the one God of the Shema, a Lord the Shema does not mention. He is identifying Jesus as the Lord whom the Shema affirms to be one. Paul's not adding, he's identifying. He's saying the Lord of the Shema is this man Jesus. So Balcom points out this is no isolated case, but it's actually fundamental to the New Testament understanding of Jesus. So I'll quote from him again. He says, The highest possible Christology, that means the study of Christ, 
The inclusion of Jesus in the unique divine identity was central to the faith of the early church even before any of the New Testament writings were written. How does he know that? Well, he says, since it occurs in all of them, in all of the New Testament writings, there's this affirmation that Jesus is Lord. Although there was development in understanding this inclusion of Jesus in the identity of God, the decisive step of so including him was made at the beginning of Christology. Now, it's important to be clear here. There's not abandoning abandoning monotheism. It's not introducing a second God. Christianity doesn't believe in two gods any more than Judaism does. We believe in only one God. But equally, what Paul is doing here is identifying Jesus with the Lord of the Shema in such a way that Jesus is not God the Father. Somehow, in a way that ultimately comes to clearest expression in the Christian understanding of God as Trinity, there is room in the single identity of the one God for the man Jesus Christ, but in a way that distinguishes him from God the Father and God the Spirit. Yet there's not three gods, there's one God. Now, if you're starting to say, you're just talking gibberish to me, you're waving your hands, you're saying one God, Father, Son, Spirit, but not three gods, but then you need to get hold of the 2006 annual conference talks and listen where we did a doctrine of God for a whole week. And maybe that will help. It should help. I hope it helped for those who are there. Now, you see this divine inclusion of Jesus in a whole host of ways in the New Testament. So let's just whiz over these. You see Jesus included in the divine identity in worship. Now, in Isaiah, the Lord, Yahweh, says very clearly that he alone is to be worshipped because he alone is the true God. So you can see there Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. The Lord says, For I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. So it's very clear what God's saying there, right? To me every knee will bow to me, every tongue will swear to me, I will not allow it to go to anyone else. But then listen to what Paul does with that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God also highly exalted Jesus Christ and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the same pattern, right? Jesus included into God's identity such that he receives the worship that is God's alone. And there's other examples too. As the pre-existent son, Jesus is included in God's work of creation in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. As God's son, he shares in God's work in sustaining all things, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Now here's another one you may not have noticed before. Jesus is included in the divine identity in prayer. Look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. It's one of those things where you're just reading the Bible, you just pass over these things, you just read it. Then some thing, hang on, what's he just done? He's done two inclusions there, right? Paul's included Jesus in the divine sovereign direction of his plans. May God the Father and the Lord Jesus direct our way. So suddenly Jesus is in control of the universe. But secondly, remember for a Jew to pray to anyone other than the one true God, that's idolatry. 
That's an implication of monotheism. There's only one true God to pray to. But here, our Lord Jesus is included alongside God, our Father. They're distinct from each other, but somehow not separate from one another. And it's, yeah, pray here to Jesus and to God the Father. Well, one final example of this astounding inclusion is in our spiritual experience of God's presence. Now, notice in this passage from Romans 8, 9 to 11, which if you were here last year when we were looking at the Holy Spirit at Ancon, you might remember this passage well. Notice how the Holy Spirit is identified interchangeably as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. It just sort of uses either one interchangeably. So, as I read it, but you are not in the flesh, says Paul, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. See, once you're alerted to it, you start to notice this inclusion of Jesus into the divine identity in all sorts of places in the New Testament. And it's summarised there in that central proclamation of the Christian gospel, which is Jesus, the Christ, is Lord. You're not just saying he's boss. You're not just saying he's the ruler or he's the king. When you say with Christians through the last 2,000 years, Jesus Christ is Lord, you're making a statement about his divinity, that he's included in the, in the one God. That's what you're saying. For years and years, we walked around the EU with T-shirts that said EU on the front and on the back said Jesus Christ is Lord. But I wonder whether we, many people got what we were actually saying to the universities we walked around with. We're making a statement about Jesus being God. This is not a negotiable part of the Christian faith. This is not hidden off in a peripheral area of Trinitarian theology that you can get to later on. The central Christian message, God's gospel, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're not saying that he's God in a simplistic way. We're not saying that he's God in a way that obliterates God the Father or God the Spirit. And we're not saying it in a way that turns us into polytheists. We mean it in precisely the way the New Testament proclaims it. For us, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, how did they come to this remarkable inclusion and announcement? Well, despite what people often claim, it wasn't later Christian believers who made up this stuff about Jesus. The origin of this claim that Jesus is Lord goes back to Jesus himself. In his own ministry, Jesus identified himself with Yahweh, the Lord. Now, you've got a quote there from a Mark guy named Marcus Borg on your outline. Marcus Borg is not an evangelical. He's a theological liberal. Um, and he finds this claim that Jesus would have identified himself with God, he finds this completely untenable. So listen to what he says. He says, Do I think Jesus thought of himself as divine? No. Perceiving oneself in such grand terms 
is a fairly good indicator that you're off base. Thinking that Jesus thought of himself in such grand terms raises serious questions about the mental health of Jesus. I don't think people like Jesus have an exalted perception of themselves. Say, if you think you're God, you go to the asylum. And he has a high respect for Jesus, so therefore doesn't think Jesus would be that crazy. The problem with this view is that you actually have to throw out what the Gospels themselves say. Look at this passage from John chapter 10, verse 30 to 38. Jesus said, The Father and I are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. And Jesus then continues, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So according to John, the Jews clearly understood Jesus to be identifying his own person with the identity of the one true God. He wasn't merely saying, I've come from God or I've come in the name of God. They were ready to stone him because they understood him to be saying that he and the Father were one. And no, Jesus doesn't say that they've got it wrong. He doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not saying that. He just says, no, your problem is you don't believe me. You've understood my claim right, you just don't believe it. What's more, he says, you should believe it because look at what I can do. Look at the works I've been doing. They are my father's deeds done through me. And doesn't that, that should tell you that I and the father are one. But interestingly, Jesus didn't just claim identification with Yahweh, he came doing what Yahweh was going to do. Two Old Testament passages you can read through later for yourselves, they're on the outline, both which talk about the Lord, Yahweh, returning to Jerusalem and to the temple in particular. First, there is on your page is Malachi chapter 3, 1 to 5, where Yahweh's return to the temple will be a day of judgment for God's people Israel. The second passage in Isaiah 52, Yahweh's return to Jerusalem or Zion will bring comfort, salvation and redemption for his people. So you've got when the Lord Yahweh comes to his temple, two things that happen. There's going to be judgment on God's people plus comfort, salvation and redemption for his people. Two things. Now bear those passages in mind and think what happens when Jesus comes to Jerusalem at the end of the Gospels. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem in the final weeks of his public ministry, where does he go? He goes to the temple. What does he do there? He cleans it out. He drives people out of it in a prophetic acting out of judgment on Israel. He foretells the temple's destruction. But he also spoke parables that that talked about a welcome for outcasts. When the Lord comes to his temple, there is judgment and yet comfort. But there are other things Jesus did that were the things that only Yahweh should do as well. In calling the 12 disciples, Jesus was 
constituting a new Israel. He was sort of starting over again, a new people of God with a new 12 tribes. And as we saw this morning, Jesus claimed to be the authoritative interpreter of the law. He presented himself as the new lawgiver on his own authority, doing things that only Yahweh should do. So this identification, I think, of Jesus with Yahweh, you can see it in what he says and you can see it in what he did. It goes back to Jesus himself. But secondly, God vindicated Jesus' claims. How did he do that? He did it through resurrection. See, at one level, Marcus Borg is right. All sorts of crazy people have claimed to be God. How do we know that Jesus wasn't just crazy? How do we know that he was telling the truth? So what's, what's different here is that Jesus' claim is vindicated by his heavenly father through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So see the Apostle Thomas's response when he meets the resurrected Jesus in John 20. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. See, Thomas had been the person who had, he just didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. But when he's confronted with the risen Jesus and a rather scary challenge to put your fist in my side. Okay. What does he do? What is Thomas's response? So it is there. My Lord and my God. Thomas makes a connection between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' identity, his divinity. Same connection is there in Peter's first sermon, which we saw in Acts 2. If Jesus has been raised, then he is Lord. That is, he's to be identified with Yahweh, the Lord. So Jesus' resurrection is the key to the identification of Jesus as the divine Lord. But we need to step carefully through that logic because I think Christians and us included are often very sloppy here. You can see in the first diagram on page 18 how often Christians link the two. We sort of go, Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore Jesus must be God. I don't know if you've heard people sort of present that as proof for who Jesus is. Look, he was raised from the dead, he must be God. Problem is, that's not how the New Testament actually links Jesus' resurrection with his divinity. What's more, it doesn't work logically either. And so Tom Wright explains here why the logic doesn't work. He says, since no second temple Jews known to us, that is the Jews of the first century, were expecting the one God to appear in human form, let alone to suffer physical death, Nobody at the time would have thought of resurrection as demonstrating someone's divinity. Equally, such second temple Jews, as were expecting resurrection, were expecting it to happen to everyone, certainly to all the righteous among God's people and perhaps to all the wicked as well. When the New Testament predicts the resurrection of all who belong to Jesus, there's no suggestion that they will thereby become or be shown to be divine. Clearly, therefore, resurrection by itself could not be taken to prove the divinity of Jesus. If it did, it would prove too much. The over-simple apologetic strategy one sometimes encounters, he was raised from the dead, therefore he is the second person of the Trinity, makes no sense. From either end, 
within the historical world of the first century. That is, if it's true in Christ that you are going to be raised from the dead, does that make you God? No. Well, the same logic works for Jesus. Just because he's raised doesn't make him God. So how does the New Testament link his resurrection to his divinity? I think it's more like the second diagram on your page there. Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, Jesus must be the Messiah, citing passages in the Old Testament like Psalm 16. But if Jesus is the Messiah then that means Jesus shares God's throne because that was one of the promises in the Old Testament to the Messiah, like in Psalm 110. So if Jesus shares God's throne, Jesus must be included in the identity of God. That is, there's a series of dominoes to fall. The first domino, the vital first domino, is that Jesus was raised from the dead. His resurrection proves he was the Messiah. The Messiah was to share God's throne. So Jesus must be included in the identity of God. His resurrection was the moment when God the Father vindicated his claim to be Christ and Lord. So what this means is that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely critical for the truth about Jesus and therefore the truth of the entire Christian faith. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, which is there in the box at the top of page 19, If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. So it's actually vital to know whether or not you can trust the resurrection of Jesus. Did it really happen or not? Because if it didn't happen, none of those dominoes fall. And the very Christian gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord. So did the resurrection happen or not? You can see there in the box two opposing views. Richard Dawkins says, no way. The historical basis for believing Jesus' resurrection, there is no historical basis for it. Tom Wright, who's probably done the most thorough recent historical investigation into the resurrection of Jesus, he begs to differ. And at this point, Dawkins, who is an incredibly intelligent man, but as a professional evolutionary biologist, he makes a lousy historian. And you can see Tom Wright's more considered approach to the historical reliability of the resurrection accounts it's there in the box for you to read later. His conclusion, after literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, is that the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection is, quote, as watertight as one is likely to find from a historical point of view. So just a side comment. If you're here at Ancon this week and you're still investigating Christianity, you ought to consider the evidence for the resurrection because Christianity's claim about Jesus stands or falls on whether he was raised from the dead. You ought to investigate those claims. And there's some good books up on the bookstall uh, that, that will help you to look at Jesus' resur- resurrection and the evidence for it in greater detail. Or talk about it in your review groups. It's worth investigating and settling your own mind on that question. So, what we've seen so far is that the Christian gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord, declares that Jesus is included in the very identity of God. However, point E, the scriptures keep affirming Jesus' genuine humanity. He's included in God's identity, but he's fully human. So just a a few passages here. 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Jesus Christ himself, human. That's pretty clear, isn't it? 
himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. Or Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared the same things. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect. Same themes there in John 1, when John, John says the word became flesh, or Paul in Romans 8, 3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The consistent testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus was a human being in every respect like you or me, except that he was without sin. That is the only difference. But that then gets a bit difficult, doesn't it? If you've been following me so far, that gets a bit tricky because we're saying he's God, included in divine identity, but he's fully human. How can Jesus, a man, be God as well? Well, welcome to WrestleMania 27. (laughs) Clash of the Christologies. Jesus, man, God, or what? This is the heavyweight theological division. And in the red corner, we have the adoptionists. The adoptionists who say Jesus in himself was not divine. He was just a man. But a man who, for various reasons, was adopted or promoted by God at some particular point in his life to a position of divine sonship. He became divine at some particular point in his life. But you see their point. He's not fully God. He's a man. Well, in the blue corner, you've got the Docetics. The Docetics who say Jesus actually wasn't really a human. He was fully God, but just God who looked like a human. And as these two opposing Christological understandings clash, we end up with all sorts of intermediate positions that tend to lean more one way or the other. Now, before we get into tonight's bout, you might be asking, or maybe you've heard other people say, look, all this theologising, what a load of wasted breath. I mean, really, why are we spending so much time talking about these theological questions? It's pretty clear what we're to do. Read your New Testament and live for Jesus. Well, here's two reasons why we actually need to do this. First, how Jesus can be God and man, I say to you, is an unavoidable question. You can't really sidestep it. Here's a comment from a guy, a theologian, Alan Spence. He says, throughout history, there have been some who have argued that Jesus was not a real human person and others who have held that he was no more than a man. In both cases, the Christological problem as such is avoided. But for all those who participate in the life and worship of the church, there does not seem to be any way round this primary question. How can this man, who was born of a woman and died under Roman law, be worthy of our divine worship, unreserved faith and unquestioned obedience? Reflective Christians are bound to consider seriously the fascinating but perplexing matter of who Jesus really is. That is, it's an unavoidable question because as Christians, you worship this Jesus. 
But the Bible teaches it's idolatry if we worship a creature instead of the creator. So if you worship Jesus, a man, you've got to ask this question. But it's also an incredibly vital question. Alan Spence again explains why it mattered then and it matters now. Here it is. The early church had come to recognise that its understanding of the person of Jesus was the cornerstone of its entire belief system, its worship and its way of life. Everything of importance that it held to be true was seen to depend on who Jesus Christ was. Consequently, understanding and confessing Jesus aright was for these questions far more than a mark of ecclesiastical orthodoxy. It was for them the basis or ground of their salvation. You might want to underline that sentence. It was the basis or ground of their salvation. They believed that to be wrong here threatened their eternal standing with God. Historical theologians who interpret the Christological debates of the early centuries simply as a matter of power politics, Machiavellian intrigue and party spirit are in danger of completely missing the point. For most Christians, these discussions were related to eternal salvation. The truth about Jesus' person was held to be of ultimate soteriological, which means of, about concerning salvation, significance. That is why it is so important to get it right. He's not saying that they thought they were saved by correctly understanding how Jesus could be God and man. It's not salvation by correct knowledge. What he means is that your answer to the question of who Jesus is has massive implications for how you think we're saved. And therefore, it has massive implications for how you respond to God's offer of salvation. If you get it wrong here, it can really lead you down the garden path. So this is a question to which we really want to find the right answer best fits the Bible's testimony. So, back to WrestleMania 27, the clash of the Christologies. Let's have a look at some of the options. Option number one, Jesus, the spirit-inspired human. So Marcus Borg, this liberal theologian who we met a moment ago, he holds this particular view. He objects to regarding the human Jesus as divine, but he sees him more as a spirit person. So let me quote from him. God is the encompassing spirit in whom we live and move and have our being. Within this view, Jesus as a spirit person was open to the presence of God. Writers on spirituality sometimes speak of emptiness as a condition of the psyche that makes possible being filled with God. For whatever combinations of reasons, genetic inheritance, socialisation, spiritual practices and so forth, we may imagine that Jesus was so empty in this sense that he could be filled with the Spirit. Note that there's nothing here at all about Jesus being or even becoming divine in his earthly ministry. Jesus is just more open to the all-encompassing divine Spirit than most of us. So in terms of our two opposing corners, the adoptionists and the docetics, he doesn't even make it into the ring. He is way over to the left, past the adoptionists. He's saying, Jesus, he was never divine in his earthly ministry at all. And in fact, um, Fitzsimmons, Allison, points out this, his, his view here, 
that Borg is putting forward. So this was never an historical Christian position. He says, the widespread denial of Christ's divinity in liberal Christianity in modern times finds no reflection in any of the major classical heresies. That is, it's more heretical than the heresies. To hold this sort of liberal view, you have to ignore or write off most of what the New Testament says about the person of Jesus. And this is what the liberal theological position does. You need to give this one, I think, a cross, this view. Cross it out. Well, what about our guys in the ring? What about the adoptionists? So, as I said before, this is the view that the man Jesus was adopted or promoted by God at some point in his earthly life to the position of divine son. Usually people suggest it happened at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended on him in some visible form. Now, the attraction of this view, and there is an attraction to this view, is that if you hold it, you don't have any problems that come from God becoming a human being. Here it's all about being lifted up to divinity. And people have often historically been a bit uncomfortable about how could the great God become a human being? Surely it would be more us being lifted up to him. Now the difficulty with this view is that the Gospels tell us the Spirit was intimately involved with Jesus from the very moment of his conception onwards. Think of the infancy narratives in Matthew or Luke. There's no suggestion in the New Testament that God became God's son at some subsequent point. So you've got to give that one across as well. Adoptionists? Uh-uh. Well, what about the blue corner? What about the Docetics? Now, um, Docetics come from the Greek word dokeo, which means seems. That is, in this view, God just seems like a human being. He wasn't really a human being. God just looked like a human. He dressed up as a human, if you like. Didn't actually become one. Now, there's an attraction in this view too, because it protects God from having to suffer. So the thinking went like this. We know that God is changeless and eternal. Therefore, God can't possibly suffer and die, because he's changeless and eternal. So when God came amongst us as Jesus... God must have just pretended to suffer and die. Jesus must have just, he seemed like a human being, he seemed to suffer, but he wasn't really. Because God can't suffer, God can't die. Again, the problem here is that you have to say the Bible is just not speaking truthfully when it says Jesus suffered, or that Jesus was himself human in every way like us. So we have to give this one across as well. But Alan Spence points out how this actually has ongoing relevance today, this particular view of Docetics. He says, It is unlikely today that any theologians would describe themselves as Docetics or argue that Jesus did not truly suffer in a physical or material body. Rather, the word tends to be used in a pejorative sense to describe Christologies which are held to have failed to affirm adequately the human reality of Jesus as a fully human, physical, mental and spiritual being. So these days it tends to describe more a leaning or a a tendency rather than a dogmatic position. See, I reckon most of us are probably leaning towards the docetic view of Jesus. I reckon most of us have a view of Jesus that has him hovering approximately 25 centimetres off the ground. 
when you think of Jesus, you probably think he's sort of hoverplaned. I mean, not literally, he probably walked, but, but in, his, in his real self, like he just, he's not like you and me. I mean, he's got, he's God, right? He's got a, do you know? We lean to the blue corner, I think. And we've got to be careful about that. He was fully human, just like you. Here's a good example of leaning to the blue corner. Apollinarianism. Apollinarius of Laodicea, writing in 370 AD, he said this. He said, we confess that the word of God has not descended upon a holy man, which happened in the case of the prophets. Rather, the word became flesh without having assumed a human mind. That is a changeable mind, which is enslaved to filthy thoughts, but which exists as an immutable and heavenly divine mind. That is, God became a human being, but with a divine mind. Didn't have a human mind like you and me. He had a divine mind. Well, that sounds okay. That's pretty good. But then the question is, is Jesus, in that case, fully human? No, he's human, but with a divine mind. That, does, that makes him not like you and me. So Gregory, in 380 AD, replied, He says, if anyone had put his trust in him as a man without a human mind, he is really bereft of mind and quite unworthy of salvation. That is, if you believe what Apollinarius said, you need your head read. And here's his reason, this is worth underlining. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half Adam fell then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of Adam fell, which is what we hold to be true, he must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. Now you see here what Gregory is doing. He's drawing out the consequences for salvation if you hold this view about Jesus. If Jesus didn't have a human mind, then our minds have not been redeemed. For Jesus to be the way of salvation for us, as Hebrews put it, he had to be made glider cast in every respect, every way, including taking on a human mind with human limitations. Do you think as Jesus walked around Palestine, he knew about trigonometry? Do you you think he... Well, trigonometry is pretty old, so maybe he did. Um, But maybe he... Did he know about space travel? Microwave ovens. (laughs) Do you think he walked around Judea going, man, if only I had a microwave here, man, that would be so much easier. (laughs) We're just 2,000 years too early. He had a fully human mind with the human limitations. He, He knew what a human would know, except for whatever his father revealed to him. So we're going to have to give a cross to Apollinarianism. 
There is another option, though. A bit later on, in 420 AD, we meet Nestorius, Nestorius of Constantinople. Nestorius declared that within the one individual walking around Palestine, there were two natures in the Christ, a divine nature and a human nature. But each of these natures, according to Nestorius, had an independent and real existence in Christ so that the different things Christ did or said could be attributed to either his divine nature or his human nature. In fact, Nestorius thought it was advisable to make sure that when you're speaking about the clearly human things of Christ, you actually should say Jesus. But when speaking of the things that are, that are part of Christ's divine nature, you should refer to God. And if you're speaking of the single entity that encompasses both the divine and human nature, you should speak of Christ or Son or Lord. So he says Mary was Jesus' mum, but you should not call her the mother of God because Jesus being born and having a mum, that's related to his human nature. So it was that type of thing that led him to say things like there on your page, I could not call a baby two or three months old God. Now you say, wow, that's pretty sophisticated, trying to work that out. But then uh, Cyril of Alexandria in 430 AD came out fighting. He says, it is not sufficient for sound doctrine merely to hold a union of two persons, as do some. For scripture says not that the word united himself to the person of a man, but that he was made flesh. That means nothing else than he partook flesh and blood like us. He made our body his own without ceasing to be God. That is, what Nestorius had done was weaken the extent of the incarnation. According to Cyril, in Jesus, God the Son works in continuous and unbroken union with humanity. Every act is an act of God enfleshed in history. You, you can't separate out divine acts of Christ from the human acts of Christ. It is all God enfleshed. There are no separate God or human acts in Christ's incarnate life. Now, the theological wrestling match wasn't over until 451 AD and what is known as the Council of Chalcedon, where much of Cyril's Christological thinking held sway. And the Chalcedon conclusion is this, uh, and this is sort of not in their words, but just trying to summarise it. In Jesus, the divine person of God the Son lived a normal human life through his human nature not abandoning the qualities of his divine nature, yet not allowing them to distort his human nature by removing its limitations. So you see the picture there. Jesus is fully God, fully human, one person, but in two natures. And uh, just to sort of, you know, impress your friends, well, actually, you know, it wouldn't impress your friends, would it? But anyway, here's the formal definition from the council from 451 and how they summarised it. Following the Holy Fathers, we all... Actually, it wasn't in English, though. That was in Greek or Latin, probably, but since I can't speak those languages. Following the Holy Fathers, we all, with one voice, confess our Lord Jesus Christ to be the one and the same Son, perfect in divinity and humanity, truly God and truly human. 
consisting of a rational soul and a body, being of one substance with the Father in relation to his divinity and being of one substance with us in relation to his humanity and like us in all things apart from sin. He was begotten of the Father before time in relation to his divinity and in these recent days was born from the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer, for us and for our salvation in relation to his humanity. He is one and the same Christ, the Son, the Lord, the only begotten, who is to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The distinction of natures is in no way abolished in account of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature is preserved and concurring into one person and one subsistence. Not as if Christ were parted or divided into two persons, for he remains one and the same God, and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from the beginning spoke concerning him, and our Lord Jesus Christ instructed us, and the creed of the fathers was handed down to us. But what does it mean? Well, Gerald Bray helps us out. He helps translate that conclusion into plain speak. Here it is. Put in the most simple language, Jesus could be fully God without knowing as a man the secrets of nuclear physics or even how to use a telephone. His omniscience as God did not automatically carry over into his life on earth as a man. Well, well done. You got through the wrestling match. What we're going to do is we're going to break for five minutes, then we'll come back and ask the question, why does this really matter? I do hope you take some time over the next couple of days to go and look at the bookstall up the back. There are lots of useful books up there. I thought I'd just point out a few to you. All right. For those of you who are interested, those of you who are interested in some of the stuff we talked about this morning, about can we trust the Gospels, here's a great little book written by an ex-EUer who's now at Bible College, Andrew Errington. Can we trust what the Gospels say about Jesus? Less than $5. Less than $5. Great buy. Secondly, Hey, over there. Hey, you. Okay, some other good books on the bookstall to do with stuff that we looked at this morning. whole bunch of books by Paul Barnett. Lots of really useful things there. Is the New Testament History? It's been around for a while now. Really helpful book, so they've reprinted it. If you're interested in finding out whether you can really trust the New Testament, that's a great book. Or another one that Paul Barnett's written specifically on Jesus, the truth about Jesus. Another useful book. Lots of those up on the bookstop, bookshop. John Dixon has um, both theological degrees and history uh, PhD, and uh, he's written lots of books on the historicity of the New Testament. Here's one called The Christ Files, How Historians Know What They Know About Jesus. That's less than $10. Less than $10. We've got a whole pile of them up there that's worth looking at. He's also written a brand new one. And this looks swish, hey. This is swish. Glossy pages, 
beautiful pictures, breakout boxes. It's really, really nice. I must admit, I saw a pile and thought, oh, that was crazy. Why would we buy a whole, get a whole lot of books that will never sell because they'll be way too expensive? I mean, it looks nice. And then I looked, 1495. I went, okay, now I know why we have a whole bunch of them. That looks really good. Like that's that's so good. You could easily give that as a gift to lots of people, not necessarily people who are Christians, because it's full of great scholarship. Talks about all the stuff we talked about this morning and a heck of a lot more. And it's got beautiful glossy pages. It's just so nice. So they're up on the books, all all reasonably cheap. If you're interested in some of the stuff we've been talking about tonight and Christology, I think there's one copy of this book up there. Christology, A Guide for the Perplexed, and you may well be feeling that, but that's okay, that book's up there, you have a look at that. Or another one by Tom Smale, who will come to a quote from him in a moment from this book, a book called Like Father, Like Son, The Trinity Imaged in Our Humanity, how the impact, how the Trinity affects your view of what it is to be a human being, and I think this must have the wrong sticker on it, that says seven ninety five. So I don't quite know how, because I, I think I paid more than $30 for that, so I'm not quite sure how that happened. Anyway. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? That Jesus is fully human and fully God. Okay, first of all, let's take it in parts. Real humanity matters. I'm going to give you four reasons why Jesus' full humanity matters. First, Jesus' real humanity matters because we are saved by Jesus' humanity. Take Paul in Romans 5, 18 and 19 as an example. Paul's point is that It takes a human being to undo the problem introduced by Adam, the first human being, in Genesis 3. So he says there, Romans 5, Therefore, just as one man's trespass, talking about Adam, led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness, meaning Jesus, leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It takes a human being to undo Adam's fall. Second reason, real humanity matters because each false view of Christ's humanity implies a false view of the Christian faith and our humanity. I'll give you two examples, show what I mean. Remember the adoptionists in the red corner that you had to be promoted to divinity? Well, if they're right, then Christianity really is a matter of you trying harder. The adoptionists usually claim that Jesus was adopted to divinity because of his obedience. So it suggests that salvation comes as God's response to our effort, that salvation is earned. But frankly, that's a very overly positive view of our humanity, that we can be good enough for God. The New Testament says we all fall short of the glory of God. So the adoptionists, you can see how that leads to a false view of Christianity and a false view of humanity. The docetics, on the other hand, in the, in the blue corner, they couldn't handle the thought that God would take on all the limitations of human existence. And asceticism tends to find, take a negative view of created matter and is much more negative about the creation and created stuff than the Bible is. So it has, it has a false view of Christianity again because it says, oh, God wouldn't want to get messed up in stuff. That's not what the Bible says. And so consequently, it also has a lower view of of human existence than the Bible teaches as well. 
Moreover, on the same point, the Bible presents Jesus not just as a real human being, but he acts, it presents him as the true human being, untarnished by sin. And here's a quote from Tom Smale. He says, from start to finish, the human creation is Christologically orientated. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end of all that is, only to the degree that our living reflects his living do we live at all. To begin to lose his likeness is to begin to die. Sin threatens not just moral condemnation, but ontological disintegration. If you don't know what that means, talk to an art student. In an exocentric, what is exocentric, what? Exocentric, meaning um, not egocentric, is in on yourself. Exocentric is focused on others, right? In an exocentric openness to God and to others, we become so far like Jesus. In the egocentric inversion, which is the essence of sin, his image in us is dimmed and obscured and our lives are at stake. In the rest of us, apart from Jesus himself, the image of God is blurred, compromised and rendered ambiguous in a thousand different ways. To learn finally and unambiguously what it means to be human in the Imagio Dei, the image of God, we have to accept the unintended invitation of Pontius Pilate to look at Jesus. Behold the man. He is the true human being. third reason Jesus' real humanity matters is related to the second one. Real humanity matters because we will be what he is. 1 Corinthians 15. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. So in his resurrected human existence, Jesus is what one day all who have faith in him will be. You will be like him. That's why his humanity matters, because you're a human being. Finally, real humanity matters because we turn to him as one who understands and has gone before us. Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's why Jesus' real humanity matters, because it is only as one of us that Jesus can save us. Only as one of us can he be the one who goes before us, be the one to whom we can turn, be the one who shows us what true humanity looks like and what we ourselves will be like when we're made to be like him. But his real divinity matters too. This has been affirmed by Christians from the Apostle Thomas onwards. Remember how he said, confronted with the resurrected Jesus, my Lord and my God? 
And Jesus' divinity has been affirmed by Christians in all denominations through the Nicene Creed. You may know it. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, and through him everything was made. We affirm Jesus' divinity, but why does it matter? Well, two reasons. Real divinity matters because we worship him. As I said before, if Jesus is not fully God, then we dare not and must not worship him. If we don't think Jesus is God, then to worship him is idolatry. But second, real divinity matters because salvation is from God, not from us. Now, we're going to explore this more tomorrow night, but if Jesus is the one who secures our salvation and he's not God, then salvation has actually become a human achievement. It's something that a human being, Jesus, achieved. And it's no longer from God's grace to us. But that's a distortion of the whole of the Bible. Since always and ever in the Bible, throughout the long history of God's dealings with his people, salvation has only and ever been an undeserved act of God's grace and kindness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself. Real divinity matters because salvation is from God, not from us. Well, tonight has been quite a ride. Uh, We started with a simple gospel message that Jesus Christ is Lord. We've seen that saying something profound and astounding about this man, Jesus, that as the Lord, he's been included by the apostles in the identity of the one God. And we had a brief look at the theological wrestling match that resulted as Christians sought to grasp that reality of who Jesus is. So let's finish tonight by just pausing to reflect and ask again our question. If this is who Jesus is, what does it reveal about reality? What does this reveal about reality? Well, what it means, at least in part, is that in Jesus, God has revealed himself. If Jesus is fully God, then God has revealed himself in this person. That's how we can know what God is really like. You know, the New Testament tells us again and again, if you want to know who God is, you need to look at Jesus. He's not just a place to look. He's not just one of a number of reasonable places to look. He is the place you need to look if you want to know God. Because in Jesus, God has come amongst us. So Philip said to Jesus in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Or the Apostle John's reflection on the incarnation, the beginning of John's Gospel, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. 
Or Jesus himself in Matthew 11, 27. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is the only way you will know God the Father is through Jesus. It's through Jesus, the incarnate Son, revealing the Father to you. Or finally, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? Where do you get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? Where? Looking at the sunset. There's the glory of God. When you're up in the prayer tower on Friday morning at some unearthly hour, the glory of God. And the, no, the place that you ultimately see, get the light of the knowledge of the glory of the God is in your Bible. It's in the historical Jesus. Not in your experience. Not in how you feel about Jesus. It's in these words where you meet God enfleshed. And as God takes that truth and writes it deep into your heart and mind by the power of his spirit, that's how you have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, who then is this Jesus? What we've seen today, he is the living Lord. That's who we've seen Jesus is tonight, the living Lord. Remember, resurrected, proclaimed Lord. So several years ago at annual conference, we did an annual conference on the resurrection. Uh, 2007, who was that? A few of you. One of the things I said at that conference was that Jesus is not a concept because Jesus is alive. He's living. It's true, isn't it? We often treat Jesus as if he were just a figure of history. Or we treat him as art that we might admire. Or just a character in the story of the Bible. Moses, David, Jesus, Paul. We treat him maybe as a religious abstraction, a theological puzzle to solve. Well, do, what do you think about Apollinarianism? What do you... Or we, we treat him as a Christian concept. Just another section in our systematic theology. That was this creation, understanding that, and predestination and getting that, and Jesus and getting that. And Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is alive. He's a person. A human being. Resurrected, yes. Glorified, yes. Real, yes. Living, yes. In fact, some of the Howies that year, like our ministry trainee staff, they gave me a present. Um, this was the present they gave me at the end of that year. It was a T-shirt. I won't name the person who did it because they're obviously incredibly gifted artistically. Jesus is not a concept. You see that? He's alive. 
he's alive. Maybe we should all get shirts like that. Because we forget it pretty easily, don't we? Friends, Jesus lives. Hallelujah. You know what hallelujah means, right? Praise the Lord. Friends, Jesus lives. I think we should actually start that as a thing, by the way. See, the traditional Christian greeting on Easter Day, the traditional Christian greeting on, on Easter Day has been for centuries, Christ is risen. Ooh, I'm impressed. Well done. But frankly, that's nice and it's got history on its side, but I think we could try something a bit punchier. Jesus lives. Amen. Amen. So I have visions of us walking around the campus. Jesus lives. Hallelujah. Now, remember, though, that Jesus isn't just alive. He's the living Lord. He is God, the eternal son, which means, like Thomas, we say, my Lord and my God. And like Thomas, we bow down and we worship this one who lives, which leaves us then with the question, will you worship him? By which I mean not... Will you sing his praises? I don't just mean, will you pray to him? All of which is right and proper, and I think we're probably going to do that in a moment. Well, I hope we are. I mean, will you worship him as your God, this Jesus, with every energy and ounce of your being? So you can't be half-hearted in worship. And again, I'm not talking about singing. You live for and you serve this God or you don't. Everyone is serving something. There's a world of gods out there, small g. Religious gods, material gods, social gods, intellectual gods. Will you worship this living Jesus as your God? Will you bow down and serve him with every ounce and energy of your being? Because Jesus is the living Lord. Friends, Jesus lives. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We honour you. We serve you. We love you. We're not worthy of you. We praise you for your act of obedience, which has made it possible for us to be saved. We thank you that you, the eternal Son, came amongst us, took on flesh, became like us in every respect, 
so that you might save us. We praise and honour you. We give you our lives. Strengthen us by the gift of your spirit to live this day, this night, this week, this life for you and your glory. To the glory of God, your Father and ours. Amen.